0: Massive thank you, as always, to our top-tier patrons, Sarah Turner. It's Not Just In Your Head is hosted by psychotherapist Dr. Harriet Freud, substance use disorder counsellor Ekoi Hero, and myself, the editor and producer, Liam Tate. This podcast is entirely funded by listeners, and as the famous meme states, we are critiquing capitalism because we are forced to participate in it in order to survive. So... If you can afford to give, then your contribution will ensure that we can keep making the show. However, if you can't, then please just leave a review on your podcast platform of choice. Tell your friends about us and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Reddit, or YouTube.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell.
2: In the mental health field, too often, we've made it seem as if it's just in your head. in your head. If
0: the landlord can hijack the rent by 20%. That impacts people's mental health. We
2: can't have a profit driven mental health care system if we want our people to be connected and healthy.
0: This thing happened on Twitter. I think that the tweet had been seen at least a million times. This, I think he's a therapist. He had summarized this paper that just. I, it hasn't been peer reviewed, I don't think, but I'll put the link in the show notes. But anyway, to quote, the paper explores whether online shaming is motivated by a person's desire to do good, a justice motive, and/or because it feels good, a hedonic motive, specifically as a form of malicious pleasure, <laughs> another's misfortune, and then there's that German word that I can't quite say correctly. Yeah, there's the one. yeah. Yeah. And just to skip to the end of that paper, the conclusion is that feeling good at the suffering of others may play a relatively more prominent role in online shaming than doing good. Yeah. Which is fascinating. Maybe it's obvious, but probably where we should start is why does moral outrage exist to begin with? Because clearly, if you're on the other end of it, there's the mental health out from being a target of sort of the mob, as it were. And you may say it doesn't matter because they deserved it because they did X, Y, Z thing. But shaming is a form of group cohesion, right, and social control. It's like a way of enforcing certain kind of behaviors. And there's a, quite, a good quote there. Moral outrage is important in uniting people to act together to promote justice for disadvantaged or marginalized groups. So... That will sound, by and large, thumbs up positive, right? Like you can see how moral outrage is maybe a pro-social impulse that you see something that you fundamentally disagree with and you're trying to make sure that maybe something doesn't fall apart that you value. But the twist, I guess, the dark part is that for all the keyboard warrior thing of standing up for causes, If actually what's going on behind the scenes is a kind of, maybe it's not perverse, but it's certainly a kind of enjoyment at seeing someone get their sort of just desserts, as it were. I'm wondering maybe how you think about this piece of news, about this paper. Is it something obvious that both of you, like with the clients you've worked with, and also we have to check ourselves here, right, as well, because on this podcast, the focus on mental health and capitalism. So when there's critiques of, and we had an episode where Jeff Bezos was a target of various things or yeah. Jordan Peterson or any of these kind of people. Yeah, l- l- that's actually a great example the Jordan Peterson thing because he had a great fall essentially, didn't he? And that's one of the, obviously the insights that they have in this thing is that it's very much related to someone's status. The all poppy thing that as someone ascends, there's a okay. real pleasure in watching them Oh. And uh, yeah, I'm just wondering maybe, yeah, in terms of checking ourselves, there are sort of, are we misstepping in some of the things that we talk about? How do you guys think about these kind of perverse enjoyments that are actually the driving force behind seemingly socially progressive causes?
2: I think that there's a real difference in being angry at someone's social role, let's say being angry at Musk, or his social for all the acquisition of money at other people's expense and for charging for Twitter when he's the richest man in the world. Not because of his personal whatevers, but because the social role he plays in our class-divided society is a perverse and destructive role of which he's a symbol. It's nothing personal. Personal attacks are another thing. That's what Trump specializes in when he has a, an opponent by calling DeSantis Meatball an anti-Italian. That I think that part of the rage that comes out in the United States against individuals in a destructive, shaming way, young people commit suicide sometimes by being pushed into shame and degradation, is because there is no movements no healthy place for people to show that our empire is going and the discrepancy between the rich and poor is growing and people have nothing young people have nothing much to look forward to as our country deteriorates we don't have a political voice and it all goes into the personal and yeah
0: and i'd like to jump on that because they heard. mention in this paper two different kinds of shaming the stigmatizing shaming versus reintegrative shaming and the point being that the stigmatizing one is focused on that an individual is just evil for doing what they've done right whereas the reintegrative shaming is about the act might have been evil but it doesn't say the person is forever stained by this thing and that actually in the experiments that they did, and obviously these experiments are to some degree limited, but still Mm -hmm. worth talking about, that when the focus of comments that people were exposed to were weighted towards the reintegrative shaming, there tended to be less of a pile on, right? Because it's that sort of amplifier effect of the group that you're in or with or identify with. So there is obviously a way out of creating an environment which festers, as it were. But yeah, Harriet Eko, I don't know. Sorry, I interrupted that.
2: That's fine. Eko has a reaction too, which we need to hear. I think part of it—it's a displacement, like Harriet
1: talked about, where there is no, there is a lot less opportunity, and it's not just like a lack of the lack of organizations and the lack of kind of like real ability to exert some kind of productive change is absolutely limited. But it's also the conditions of people having to work multiple jobs to make ends meet. And the cost of childcare in this country is egregious. It's almost like another mortgage or another rent. And so many just conditions being that everyone is scraping to get by in so many ways, and I think that also that kind of builds up a sense of isolation in people. Frustration, yeah, yeah, frustration, isolation, because we talk about like the there's been the big focus on like loneliness. The useless surgeon general Vivek Murphy has. Loneliness is a serious and important issue, but there there is this major element to like you have to be able to have some kind of energy to socialize. Yeah, building a community is something that requires time and energy. That is your personal social circle or anything else, and that's something that we lack in major ways in this society. And I think that all those things contribute to when time is limited, when energy is limited, some of the lesser instincts do tend to take over. Okay. And they do tend to become like people are going for the or bang for the buck because there is nothing necessarily, I think some of the negative things like schadenfreude, right? Like, in moderation, they are they can be very good,
0: yeah, I think a lot of reality t v is based off that, like it's entertaining right. to watch people get there. It's like the whole phrase that's goes around on the internet, like fuck around and find out., <laughs> it's a bit like that. There's that famous ha ha yes meme that's was from the onion. There's a black and white cartoon of a guy staring through the window, just relishing people's suffering. And I thought actually that would be that would have been a great picture to summarise what this paper's talking about. But in this paper, they mention the John Ronson book. You say you've been publicly shamed. There's a quote: participants mention being driven by a desire to do good. Therefore, one possibility is that people engage in online shaming because they're motivated to restore a sense of justice following their perception that an important moral value or standard has been violated. But this is that idea of confabulation and self flattery, right? The quote is people may experience shreuden- <laughs>
1: <God and Freud. laughs> they they
0: they experienced that first before using claims about deservingness as a way of justifying one's experience of malicious pleasure, so this idea of someone deserving something played a big factor in them figuring this out, but it's to my mind that was really interesting that we have a narrative for ourselves to make it okay that we enjoy something that's maybe a bit less savory if you like. I right. think
2: some people feel superior when they watch other people's suffering instead of their own because at least they're not doing whatever it is that the disgraced person is doing. But I also think we have to appreciate what Ecoy said which is terribly important which is that people in the United States over 44% are poor. And struggling and go from emergency to emergency. It's not paycheck to paycheck. It's emergency to emergency. And they are terrified and they feel unprotected. And they're fighting back in this socially unconstructive way. They're fighting back at their own sense of being being embarrassed because poverty is a crime in the United States. No. Our mayor in New York just took back, he vetoed the housing vouchers and arrests homeless people and has raised the allowable rents even in public housing. And so more and more people are on the street so that there is this upset that people feel. And this is a very socially unprotected and unway of venting without a movement and without hope it becomes individualized and terribly destructive.
1: One aspect of a lot of moral outrage is that it is something that doesn't require a lot of effort. It's a very easy, low energy cost kind of way to vent out your frustrations. And I think also, generally speaking, because poverty and having to scrape by for a long time to survive is you know, ultimately, it is a really anxiety and trauma inducing life. Yes. There is this pervasive kind of idea that suffering makes people more moral and it oh. often makes people not necessarily moral or more, more immoral, but like more emotionally volatile.
2: Yes, Indeed and right. cool and that's part of that
1: emotional volatility because things like empathy and listening and understanding they take a physical toll they take an energy toll when yes. you're
2: so want your yeah. own emotional vulnerability and people avoid that i i see that very clearly in my late mother-in-law who was a holocaust survivor who kept that holocaust going she learned survival was her only interest which i think a lot of people In the United States, are desperate to just survive, and any along the way is a weakness that can't be tolerated, and so they don't, and that's a very dangerous thing in a society. In the book, the spirit level, they go over all the things that make a society deteriorate or generate, and one of them is that level of financial and the struggle to just survive, with that being the greatest good. And so that you can afford sweetness in that environment. And I saw that among other Holocaust survivors too, that what the greatest good is your own survival at no matter what cost. And you can generate cruelty at anyone else's vulnerability in order to feel like the strong one because you're weak and frightened.
0: Another aspect to this in the paper, at least if I'm interpreting it right, was that genuine concerns for justice actually resulted in less total shaming right so the way that they do this thing is that they have this sort of pseudo news article and this event happens and people there's comments below it and they've set this whole experiment up you can read it i'll put the link in the show notes but the point being that people who are genuinely concerned with I guess, some sort of justice, aren't into shaming people to the same degree that others are who are just chasing the feeling of superiority, right? Because they make this point that there's a sort of paradox that for, I'll do the quote, it's a bit long, but bear with me. An individual who experiences outrage at breaches of moral standards may view the use of disproportionate punishment via viral shaming, as a particularly unfair and immoral course of action based basically on a belief that one should avoid inflicting harm on others. And this is the paradox. However, in some cases, commitment to the To that principle of not doing harm to others led to increased shaming in the name of utilitarianism, when one believes shaming is key to preventing future harm and therefore is important for the greater good.
1: A Kind of like a current modern example of that playing out on social media is a lot of the major issues around, quote unquote, like grooming and lgbt community and gender issues because the question is always just what constitutes harm is going to vary it's not a universal concept necessarily because you know what one culture or one ideology would consider a prioritized harm may be completely different for another person right so if you are from certain religious backgrounds where you are still an adherent, right? Being gay is still a, a serious sin. Yeah. Versus if you are secular and not necessarily religious, you may not see it as a sin at all. And one of the major ways politically also of like expedience as a tactic is the easiest way to create like this moral panic is always to involve protecting the children.
2: Yeah, not yeah. protect from that kind of hatred or guns or anything, but very selective protecting.
1: I mean, in terms of things like sexual abuse and child abuse in general, that is one topic that like gets everyone, regardless of their political orientation, yeah. gets people really keyed high key. And understandably, it is one of the worst aspects of one of the worst things that could happen in society, right, is the abuse and exploitation of children. But people often conflate like individual abuse versus systemic abuse. And one aspect of the whole moral panic around children has always been ultimately like if you want to prevent a lot of abuses in life including one for children it it is that they don't grow up in impoverished households exactly yeah right yeah. that because one of the things that's often just it's always felt weird to me even as a child i was like this feels odd was like as a society, we have we are supposed to have kind of this quote unquote like undying, unconditional love for children. But but rather than people. Because you know these children grow up to be adults. Yes. And it's so is there a certain age that you're suddenly no longer worth a protection or kindness or empathy in society? And this idea that like children are like this divorced category from society in some ways.
2: And yet we are a society that does not protect children. children. We don't have universal health care.
1: Because I I that's considered the purview of like adult responsibility,
2: the parents, individual. Right, if They have the money. I think those same people who are urging in the state's which are increasing. There's now 17 states that have allowed children to work right. and work dirty, hard jobs and the exploitation of immigrant children in slaughterhouses and elsewhere where they're at 13 or 14, they're cleaning up the blood and guts on the slaughterhouse floors at night that those same people trying to protect the children from a drag show story hour or pushing for the exploit, the super exploitation of children. Because I think what happens in a society in trouble as America is that people either have, which we don't, a social movement that captures them or they go berserk into these various areas. And as American capital is wanting more and more profit by exploiting more and more people, And as labor begins to fight back with unions, but doesn't have a political voice, we have two capitalist parties with different tendencies and no choice between capitalism and a socialism or social democratic platform. People are unprotected and they feel angry. And there's a lot of push in every fascistic society from the Nazi German on to Put the blame on groups that are designated as victims. Scapegoating. Of course. So you can invoke children out of one side of your mouth by keeping them out of drag story hours while you want them to work in your slaughterhouse all night. That there is this the cynical use of children while you neglect them terribly and vote against universal daycare or or after school programs.
1: Or basic education. I think Iowa is now banning HIV education in schools.
2: Yeah. And all states, there is no state that teaches social, responsible, relational birth control. Birth control based on when you have a relationship, how you regard your partner. No. We have only 17 states that even have anatomically correct birth control information and sex education. And so you deny people terribly and then blame them for the damage it costs. But that's what happens in a polarizing society that needs people to blame for its disintegration. Because it doesn't want to face the people who are, and the forces, not the individuals, but the social class forces that are responsible for this and yeah. so there is horrible scapegoating
0: so yes so on on the idea of scapegoating or yeah people to blame i'm wondering what you do with this insight that this paper's pushing for there's something interesting right the fundamental attribution error which wasn't mentioned in the paper but seems to get quite a bit of traction online it's the idea that if you make a mistake, if you screw up or whatever in your job, that you understand the context of your life, maybe you didn't get enough sleep, maybe you're hungry, et cetera, et cetera. But then other people, when they screw up, clearly they're just idiots, right? So at its most basic, it's like giving yourself the benefit of the doubt, understanding context and not giving that same benefit to other people. It's probably bigger than that, but that's the definition I have in my head. And I saw that was, that had a lot of parallels with this idea of the stigmatizing shaming versus the Reintegrative shaming. Right. Which is just recognizing that we all can make mistakes and blah 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 blah.
1: I think society, especially American society, likes to think of people like the mythology of Zeus and Athena, or like people pop out of Zeus's forehead fully formed, and we have this incredible solid sense of like agency and decision making versus understanding that human life is and social life is somewhat kind of fragile in some ways. It can be that we are physically and socially and environmentally mediated creatures, right? Mm. That we are not like this fortress of agency.
0: That's a good so, phrase. fortress yeah. of agency. Yeah. I like that
2: exactly. And also that we're socially constituted instead of your image of Ekoi of loose and in Athene, instead of coming full formed. No, we're socially constituted. It's the idea that where your society fails you, everything is supposed to be individual responsibility. You made the wrong decisions. Why is not part. And it's interesting that even the National Institutes of Mental Health, which of course don't have the advertising budgets of the drug companies or others, say that the problem with the psych field and The problem with dispensing on a mass scale of pills is that it doesn't look at the etiology, the means by which people came to their mental problems.
1: Right. To a certain degree, this is also like just true of how we treat problems, even medical problems in many ways, is just let's get rid of the symptoms. We don't really care about the cause. And everything is running on an expedience model. And that does have these social costs of if if you have an entire society that is running on expedience, you really can't blame individuals for acting in that way because that is a social
2: value. That is really profound. It's the reason that at the Amazon warehouses, they have free pain meds, not because they feel for people. They want them to keep working. So they numb themselves as the same analogy with a lot of psych drugs. That don't ever solve whatever problem led you to the situation you're in, but take away the s- symptoms and make you more comfortably known.
0: I'm wondering about this idea of enjoyment, this concept of a transgression, that we have trans- transgressive enjoyments, right? Yeah. So I was thinking, is it about just admitting this to ourselves and then somehow things get better or... Is it actually more important, not just to be aware of it, but just say like, why did I enjoy that? Why did I enjoy the pile on? And examining your own sadism, right? Because I assume historically something like the witch burning stuff, there must have been a huge amount of pleasure certain individuals were getting from that activity of finding the bad, the baddies.
2: Yeah. And burning that in yourself is heretical by projecting it outside. They're the bad ones. We're the good ones. Projecting the bad onto someone else and then hating them for it and burning them at the stake.
0: Presumably it offers no solution to actually what's driving you, right? Okay. You've just killed another human being by burning them at the stake and like the desire to do it again would manifest because guess what you never solved? You never really addressed the issue that you had, which is that what causes, what's the root of your sadism?
1: Sadism to a certain degree is really encouraged in this society. I don't think you can have a warlike society without a huge heaping of sadism.
2: Like In the Ukraine, where we're leveling that society, or we're fighting to the last Ukrainian there and financing it, and in all the wars, the shock and awe of all these bombings in Iraq, where millions of people died, or the dropping jelly, gasoline, and burning villages and children, you have to just numb yourself out and see it as collateral damage. And I think the same thing goes with venting online. It's all collateral damage. It's not a person like you right. to blow up yeah. empathy. Very important. It's important to condemning the poor. In New York City, our mayor is criticized roundly for criminalizing the poor and seeing them as somehow individually responsible for being poor or for having to leave their countries, which nobody would like to do since you leave your language and leave your family and leave everything. But as these are not human, they're other, and people have a way of othering other people and being able to therefore turn a blind heart to their suffering. Yeah, so it's it's
0: not necessarily about checking in with your own sadism. It's what is in my environment that is fostering my sadistic tendencies? Because presumably, depending on the environment you're in, they're either going to increase or decrease.
2: That's right. It excises the social responsibility.
0: And maybe this is off topic, maybe it isn't. But like in describing the state of the United States or the UK or whatever on this podcast, and it being quite truthfully bleak, is that then a form of sadism that's been enacted on the audience? And is there a deep pleasure in being like, ha ha, the empire is falling? So that's one question. And then the other question is, and p- perhaps it's mm, inappropriate, but have you ever had clients scribing things to you that are just awful stuff that's happened in their life? And then there's a the sense of they're not just telling me because they want to heal that. there's a, They're enjoying telling me some terrible things. Have
1: I had instances or have I heard of instances from other providers where You know, clients, especially coerced, this is much more likely in coerced situations, but coerced clients where they are trolling their providers. And that's basically a major show if there is no rapport here. So yeah, absolutely. But it's one of those things where sadism kind of works in different ways, whether you turn it in on yourself or turn it out to other people because sometimes, and this is like a difficult area to express properly because in the worst case kinds of framing that it can be seen as victim blaming and I don't want, I'm not framing it in that way. Sometimes people can get really stuck in an area. Yes. Right, where they just they are constantly reliving this moment. And an example would be like I there I've had clients who just could not get over a particular person. Not necessarily a good or bad relationship, but that they just could not get over a particular person. And that that they're just constant because I remember one time, and this is not my client, a therapist that I knew was going, oh, yeah, I had this client and I thought, fairly new, I thought she had, or actually it was, he had recently gone through a breakup and this ended up being like 22 years ago.
0: Wow.
1: Why
2: didn't you hold on? What right. is in And-, and-
1: Yeah. And there is something it's and usually the person in that midst of that storm, like they say it's that person, right? I can't get over that person because they were perfect for me and I missed the perfect opportunity and I'm never going to find anyone else again, etc. Or various versions of of, of those things versus a lot of times it's actually really not necessarily the person. It's often a displacement
2: for something else. What do you think that For some people, they use their trauma or their loss as an excuse for not moving on. Because whatever trauma you have, the point is to process it and learn from it and get stronger rather than to hold on to it as an excuse for your failure. And for some people, it's an excuse you can see it, you have to have people, even when traumatized, have to find a way to say, okay, what can I get out of this? Not that it was a blessing, it was terrible, but what can I learn? How can I grow? Why do I stay? And that why do I stay is an important question.
1: Yeah, it is an important question. And it's also one of society does really sometimes encourage people to stay. Yeah. Because there is, yeah, there is nothing society loves more than lurid confessions. Exactly. And so there, so again, like I don't blame people for being stuck a lot of times because very rarely are people getting good support and good feedback for them to be able to get out of these situations. It's not the society is full of you know, great feedback and and great responses. And people are just like blindly ignoring every good thing oh, and just yeah. stubbornly hanging on to. And that's not necessarily true. It's that people have a very hard time accessing good feedback because oh. that's one aspect of going back to the reintegrative kind of shame,
2: right? Mm-hmm.
1: That is really hard to do without trust.
2: Right, and trust needs to be built up. Right. And it's so evident. I remember when I was in graduate school at Columbia, I got horribly attacked by some guy with a knife and a stocking over his face. And somehow they found out about it. And they called me into the office and they said, why didn't you drop out? And I said, because I realized I'm a bourgeois girl. I didn't know how to fight back. I learned how to fight and I'm still learning. I became a karate expert. And I'm still working on it. It's what you do with the trauma. It isn't the trauma itself. People get stuck in the trauma rather than how you deal with it. Because it isn't what people are given. It's how they deal with it across the board. There are ways of dealing with things that don't make you a stuck victim. But yeah, that's a
1: huge part of, I think, how you grew up. And ultimately, you have to feel like you're an empowered and capable person to get past a lot of things. And, and that is something that society is really loath to develop. To and, yeah, that you that people feel empowered and people feel capable and people feel a real potential for growth is not a, a pervasive thing. And it's the whole Right, the, it's the whole farce of meritocracy of our society is yeah. that we say we on one side of our mouth, you work hard, you do well, you get rewarded, and yeah. the reality being that one, that's not true. That's not true for a lot of people. If you've grown a up little. in like dysfunctional families, you I get message. So
2: there are opportunities aren't there in school and so exactly
1: oh. that you don't get that. You don't get positive reinforcements in school. You don't get positive reinforcements in society. And that kind of all snowballs into when you come to a major hurdle, right? right. That if you ultimately, yeah, you know, if you have this huge hurdle that you're supposed to jump, right? And you feel like you have no legs or arms. Yeah, then it's hard. Then you're just going to understandably be like, I guess I'm not jumping this hurdle. Uh,
2: I guess I'm helpless. I guess, yeah. woman capable. And right. if you read about the things that help people, I'm reading Kristin Godsey's excellent book. We had Kristen Godsey on. She has her new book, Everyday Utopia. She talks about at some point how she didn't have the money for the SAT exam and her teacher gave it to her. And her teacher gave her the money to apply to schools so she could go and get her scholarship that someone had to care. So you see that over and over again. Somebody has to say you're worth it. And for too many people, there is no one.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. it, exactly. I guess just to go back to an earlier point then, maybe this is navel-gazing, and I can cut it out. But say, for example, in what you just said, Ecoy, about like where you burst the myth of meritocracy, Probably listeners to this podcast aren't signed up to meritocracy with Christmas in their eyes being like, yes, it's true. But is sort of saying something like that, hey, guess what? Work hard still doesn't work out. Is that an act of sadism upon the audience?
1: I'm not saying that if you work hard, it's not going to work out. You know, just I'm just saying that for things to work out, it may be more than just your effort involved.
2: That you have to right. look for any supports. Because hard doesn't mean you'll be recognized for your hard work, which I think American young people who are positive are really realizing on a level that they never have before. When I talk to young people in nineteen, eighteen, seventeen, they understand that, and they're much more politically savvy about what's coming down than I was at their age. Because mm-hmm. you can with it with a level of kind of shared knowledge, but also hope. I was impressed that in my neighborhood, junior high the middle, Lower East Side Middle School, junior high school girls and some boys walked out at nine o'clock in the morning because the boys were sexually harassing girls and the school only dealt with it on an individual and not a school-wide basis. So they called the press and walked out at nine in the morning in middle school. Well, 12, 13-year-olds, that there's a level of consciousness. Things that are bad have to be addressed. And I think that's all those high school kids coming out against guns. The Parkland people who organized it, not that it was successful yet, but there were people on every street corner in New York City with, with holding up the signs of adolescents killed in high school and asking people to do something about guns, which was amazing.
0: Do you think there is a positive form of this kind of dark enjoyment? The, sh- the German word slash, what you know, would... sadi- sadism in general. Do you think there is a positive form of it?
2: No. What do you think,
1: Ekoi? I'm a. I I used to have this term Schadenfreude, delicious, to to describe. And again, it's one of those things where, like, everything that I am for, everything in moderation. Mm -hmm. Because sometimes I'll be like looking through, so like looking through the news or whatever. And it's just, oh, this pastor who's been like sexually abusing and harassing all his trusting flock got arrested. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like in that moment, do I have this kind of like warm, fuzzy feeling? Yeah. It's tempered right? Because at the same time, it's also just, oh man, he's going to go to prison and just get worse. And if he gets out, he's pr- probably going to even be worse for the lawyer and not have any of this issues that caused all these behaviors addressed. I do have yeah, a, a sense of a breaking mechanism for that warm, fuzzy feeling. But in that moment, when I get that warm, fuzzy feeling, I'm going to fucking
2: take it. Of course. Really, to be honest, I do too. I remember reading in, I think it was Bashoven's story, All Women. He was talking about religion being damaging and he talked about the missionaries arriving in an island to civilize them. And they ate them after they arrived. They ate those missionaries. And I did get a moment of, ha, huh, oh, no wonder that they were going to solve cannibalism a little naively. That's a political reaction on my part to something people deserving harm when they're thinking that they're creating a benefit or overindulging themselves, Yeah, you know?
0: Yeah, it reminds me of like, if any sort of work of fiction, oftentimes can be nonfiction as well, that part of the way we enjoy stories is based around sort of moral values and someone getting their comeuppance. So I guess maybe what the difference is here between Ekoi, your description of the news article or Harriet's exact examples is that in both cases, they are internal felt states, but you didn't right. then maybe comment. You didn't act it out. Even if they're acting out is just like liking something on a social media thing, like clearly the positive form of sadism is some kind of release valve that stays yeah. in the world of fiction, maybe opposed to is acted out. Would that work?
2: When I think of those missionaries who thought they were going to bring Christianity to cannibals, really, it was a case of chickens coming home to roost that they were eaten instead. But I don't think I get a sadistic thrill out of it. I think I get a sense of justice even with retribution sometimes.
0: Yeah, and I think the paper is making the point that those two things are separate things and they are at play. There's this sort of sense of moral outrage and this sense of someone's going to get what they deserve, but that is running alongside parallel, the sort of sadistic tendency. And so, yeah, it's just maybe, maybe a bit more visible because of the sort of network of computers all connected to each other, maybe, but as I said it obviously is just an amplified version of what has always been part of the human experience. And I guess if I'm reading it, that maybe there is sometimes a reason to comment on these pylons is that it be, can become part of the messages that stop it descending and getting worse. Maybe if you echo that idea of the reintegrative. Yeah, the reintegrative angle, which is that this is the act is awful, but not necessarily the person. Maybe the more people that do that, maybe things get better. But maybe I'm just trying to put positive spin on something. I don't know. But I think the point is maybe to wrap it up that behind every sort of online comment, there's always something going on. Um, Yes,
2: there's always something being expressed here. And of course, a lot of people don't intervene because they don't want it to be turned on them. Because once you have a mob kind of mentality, you don't want that rage and hatred turned on you. Yeah. So it induces you to back up. Yeah. And it, this is a very interesting discussion, and it was an interesting article.
1: The only final thought that I can say from also like my experience, just personally, have I in earlier years at some point, possibly participated in a lot of what ends up being pileups, I think I absolutely have. And I think the more that you do it, the easier it becomes, that becomes like a default response. For me, like, I, it was one of those things where I will say, like, for me, once that started really, once I recognized that, that was what was going on with myself, I was just like, this isn't bringing me anything positive. It's not changing anything positive in the world. Like, why am I wasting my time this was the ultimate conclusion that I came up to. But it is something that everything is the more you practice, the easier it becomes. And that's also the same for negative
0: behaviors, right? Yes. But
1: the more you indulge it, the easier that becomes.
0: Wow, that's a great point. That's a really so, great point.
1: You know, and yeah, oftentimes when people are just like, oh, I'm taking social media break or whatever, I do think that is a good thing.
2: I do too.
0: Brilliant. Okay. Okay, we'll end it there. Massive thank you as always to our VIP patrons, Rebecca Johns, Bruce Rogers Vaughan, Alexander Lashley, Sheena Belmus, Seamus O'Connell, Alex Placito, Alexandra McCormick, Wig Shaker, Elizabeth McKechnie, J. Daniel Richer, Fontaine. Hartley Wilmoth and Sean Venado. By the way, listeners, if you have enjoyed anything you've heard Harriet say in this program, you will definitely enjoy Capitalism Hits Home, which is a solo program that Harriet does through Democracy at Work, which is a worker-owned cooperative that produces other great programs such as Economic Update with Richard Wolf and the Anti-Capitalist Chronicles with David Harvey. I can't recommend enough that everyone also listen to Capitalism Hits Home if you enjoy It's Not Just in Your Head. And if you want to hear even Even more from Harriet, check out her radio show, Interpersonal Update, on WBAI and in the WBAI archives.